Okay, okay, friends, uh, Greg Kokel here. Uh, my second hour, your second hour for the week here, and I'm glad you're uh, receiving our podcast, if that's what you're listening to. If you're not, you ought to. It comes right to your electronic device, uh, real easy. Um, I did want to mention something last week that I, last week, last, last show, earlier this week for you guys, that I didn't mention, and it has to do with a uh, position that's available at Stand to Reason. We need a, let's see, what do we call that, front office manager. That's who we're looking for, okay? And this is a person who will perform a variety of administrative duties and organization and, uh, and office support, um, manage office operations, um, customer service, correspondence, supplies, filing systems, uh, some light accounting, um, may supervise a small staff, something like that. Okay, this person has to be close, close enough to drive to work because this is an in-office position. That's why we call it front office manager. They got to be at the front office in situ here. So if you're out of state, um, uh, we're not asking you to move. You probably don't want this job. You don't want to move to California. Uh, but I just want to let you know it's available, and you can go to str.org slash careers for more information. That's str.org slash careers. Now, last broadcast, I mentioned that somebody had called in about a concern and uh, wasn't able to stay on the line, and I got a little bit more detail about that, uh, and so I want to speak to it here as we start out this show. And uh, that has to do with some flack that Scott Klusendorf has been getting regarding his view about abortion. Now, uh, you may recognize the name Scott Klusendorf. I think Scott worked for us for eight years. He was actually the first additional speaker that we added to our standard reason staff many, many years ago, probably back about 1995 or 96. He spent, I think, seven or eight years with us, and then he started his wonderful organization, uh, Life Training Institute, LTI, in which he then raised up a whole uh, group of uh, pro-life speakers, in, in, uh, including Megan Allman, who has done a lot of work for us at our realities. In fact, she's one of the speakers in the series that we're having right now. The next one coming up, um, what is the date on that, in Minneapolis, um, the 11th and 12th of November. And we've got over 2,500 people signed up already for that. And you can get information about that at Apologetics make that realityapologetics.com. But uh, Scott has been doing magnificent work training people to be pro-life apologists. So he's training his own team and, and has sent many of those out into the marketplace to train others, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of LTI, um, of people through LTI, Life Training Institute, to be pro-life and to make the case for the pro-life view. Our own material at Stand to Reason, uh, Making Abortion Unthinkable, The Art of Pro-Life Persuasion, is material that uh, Scott and I put together. And my approach to making the case is an amalgam of my ideas and Scott's. All to say, I think Scott comes with the highest credentials, but he is under attack uh, regarding a difference of opinion about how to approach the pro-life issue. And um, I guess the best way to describe the difference here between these views is um, an incrementalist approach or an all-or-nothing approach. 
an incrementalist approach or an all or nothing approach so what what should what should we um I'm trying to think of an illustration that will make the point that I, I that would be parallel between this difference of opinion. Let's just pretend we're in like 1860, and um, slavery is still um, uh, legal in the United States of America, and there are attempts to um, there attempts to to limit slavery because it's an awful institution, and hopefully, eventually end it. In fact, now I'm thinking, I don't have to think of an illustration. The Missouri Compromise was an example of this. This is a compromise that continued to allow slavery uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line, but it was not allowed to be expanded into Missouri. If I, if I understand, if I recall my history accurately, I think that's the way it was. And of course, this created all kinds of uprisings and bloody battles and etc. But I just want you to see the point. The attempt was to keep slavery out of a, a new state. It wasn't an attempt to, to il- make slavery illegal across the board. It was incrementalist. They didn't think they could make slavery illegal. They couldn't at that point. They had to fight a civil war for it, 1861 to 1865, before finally there was a supreme, there was a, a constitutional amendment prohibiting slavery. Okay, there was the emancipation halfway through the war, Emancipation Proclamation, I think that was 1863, right after the Battle of Antietam. But that was just a proclamation. It could be overturned. It required to make to end the institution. It required a constitutional amendment, which was accomplished. And there was actually a little chicanery involved by the president in so doing. If you've seen the movie Lincoln, you can follow that. But the point here is, prior to that full and complete and total abolition of slavery, there were attempts that were made to limit slavery, not to extend slavery, to protect more blacks that might be enslaved. Now notice this incrementalist approach was what doing something we can do to limit the amount of slavery, even though at that point all slavery couldn't be abolished. Now it seems to me to an even-handed person who's thinking about the horrors of slavery in America, that keeping it from expanding is a good thing, even though at that moment they weren't able to abolish it. What if somebody said, wait a minute, wait a minute, this Missouri Compromise, and again, I hope I'm getting my history right, and if it's not quite exactly right, I think you're following my basic point by parallel. All that Missouri Compromise, I know that that protects some slaves, but it doesn't protect the others. So when you're just going after the compromise and you are not protecting all the rest, you're not abolishing all of slavery, now you are compromising in a way that's morally illicit. That's wrong. It's all or nothing. Now, I know you 
what you're probably thinking. That's silly. Why shouldn't we do what we can to limit the amount of slavery in the U.S., even if we can't eliminate it entirely yet? But that's basically the same kind of thing that's going on with abortion. There are more and more people that are pro-life, and I think for the right reasons. But let's just say many that are pro-life are sympathetic to extreme circumstances, extreme in their own minds. I mean, they are extreme, but uh, they think they're extreme in the sense that they represent um, a, a qualified exception to the rule. So, abortion's wrong in their mind, but in the case of rape or incest, we think it ought to be allowed because look at the extreme set of circumstances that the mother finds herself in, and out of sensitivity to that, we are going to allow abortion under those circumstances, okay? Now, if you, if you are thoughtful about the logic of the pro-life view, and I'm just setting aside personal matters for the moment, and forgive me for doing that, that being the personal matter of the feelings of the women who find themselves in this circumstance. I am not dismissing them. I'm actually more familiar with these things than many of you may realize, okay? More personally familiar. Okay, I'm not dismissing them, but I am setting them aside now so we can look at the question of the morality of abortion. The moral logic of the pro-life view goes like this. It's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. That's murder. Abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, QED, it follows, abortion is wrong. That's the moral logic. Now, you might say, wait, proper justification. What if the baby reminds someone of a terrible experience they had, like rape or incest. Okay, um, well, if we look at the moral logic of the pro-life view, does it sound right to take the life of an innocent baby because they remind us of a bad experience we had? I think even-handed people, when the, even though we're sympathetic to the woman who's had the bad experience, it's not going to take away that experience to take the life of the child. And in many cases, that child is a redemptive element of that bad experiences. This is the good part in the minds of many who have had that terrible experience. So I'm not going to presume out of the gate that this is, this is somehow completely unacceptable to the woman. It's going to be tragic to carry this child to term. But even if it were, does the the anguish that an individual goes through justify taking the life of the innocent child. And I think in our, in our calmer moments, in our more morally reflective moments, we realize, as terrible as that is, it's still not a good reason to kill the baby. As some would put it, you don't complicate the crime of rape with the crime of murder, which it seems to me that's what would be happening if we did that. Okay? So what I'm saying is, I do not think the exceptional cases are actually exceptions to the moral rule. But some people do. And so if a state now 
is considering making abortion illegal, which many are doing ever since the SCOTUS decision decision earlier this year, Supreme Court of the United States decision, um, they are looking at how to word the legislation. And it may turn out in a given state that unless there's an exception in the legislation for rape and incest, that the legislation w- will, will not be passed. In other words, the legislation that would prohibit abortion in the state would not be passed if it didn't have an exception for rape and incest. Now, is that a legitimate moral exception? No. Just like the Missouri Compromise wasn't legitimate if, in that it didn't, it didn't abolish all slavery. Slavery was still bad in all the other states. It just meant that in Missouri it wasn't going to happen. And by parallel, this law, this isn't ideal, it isn't perfect, it's morally flawed, and it, it, it does leave, what, 2 or 3% of the babies that might be conceived through rape or incest vulnerable, but it protects 97% of the children. The goal of the law, any law, is to protect as many people as possible. All right, if we can't protect them all, it doesn't mean we shouldn't protect some, at least those that we can protect. <clears throat> and so it's Scott Klusendorf's view of incrementalism. I can live with a law for the time being that says abortion is wrong, illegal in 97% of the cases, even though it allows it in 3% of the cases, because we saved 97% of the babies in that state. This is, this is a compromise, but it's not a moral compromise. Because morally, we save most of the babies. Even though we can't get it perfect, it's, it's better than nothing. And that's what one would face in some cases where this language was not allowed. But the purists, and I think that's an appropriate way to describe them, for the purists, it's all or nothing. We are not going to affirm a bill that allows abortion for 3% of the children. We're not going to be behind it. Wait a minute. You're going to save 97% of the children. Yes, but we're voting for the death of 3%, so we're not happy with that. Wait, just count the bodies. Can you please just count the bodies? It's all or nothing. That's what you're saying. And you're satisfied with nothing? Do you see how morally twisted that is, friends? So Scott is like me. We're incrementalist. Our view is, let's save as many babies as we can save. Our support of a bill that has a provision for rape and incest for abortion is not a way of affirming the death of 3%. It's a way of affirming the life of 97%. I do not understand why people can't see that. Now, I actually think most people can. But there is a party, the purest party, so to speak, in the pro-life movement, who has not the slightest bit of patience for that way of thinking. Uh, and I suspect they would have been against the Missouri Compromise. No, let's, we're going to let slavery extend into Missouri— 
because the Missouri Compromise doesn't prohibit it in all the rest of the states in the South. It's all or nothing. I'm going to tell you what happens to people who want all or nothing. They're going to get nothing. And that is morally unacceptable. When we have an opportunity to do good, we ought to do the good that we're capable of doing. And now I'm flipping in my Bible to Proverbs because I want to find exactly how it's stated there. It's great. It's towards the beginning, chapter 3 or something like that. Here it is, verse 27, chapter 3. Do not withhold good from whom, from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Do we do do ninety-seven percent of children in a given state deserve to be unmolested and allowed to live? Yes. Do we have the opportunity to rescue them and protect them rather? Yes. What about the other three percent? We can't get them yet. Let's save the ninety-seven percent. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Enough said. I'm with Scott. And it frustrates me to no end. Really, I, 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 I almost want to say shame on you to the all-or-nothing crowd, because what's at stake? But, of course, their attitude is, shame on you, you compromisers. Okay, I'll compromise to save human lives instead of not compromise and save none. The all-or-nothing crowd is going to get nothing. And, by the way, that's true in almost everything in life. Francis Schaeffer said, Utopian ideals always turn out to be cruel in the end because they can never be fulfilled. This is a utopian ideal, at least at this point in our history. Was I happy that SCOTUS tossed the uh, abortion issue back to the states? Yes and no. If abortion kills an innocent human being, no state should have the liberty to do that. But prior to that... It was, a, it was a constitutional right, and every state had to allow it. Now some states can prohibit it. That's a compromise, and that is a good compromise, because it saves tens of thousands of lives a year. doesn't save them all, but it saves a lot. I wonder this, how this crowd felt about the SCOTUS decision, decision re- recently. I just wonder if they said, sorry, not good enough for us. Not good enough. Really? 49 years of Roe versus Wade, more than 60 million children dead in the United States alone? And we can't, we can't rejoice at saving now some, even though we don't save all? Well, it's up to you. You decide. But that's my point of view. Okay, let's break, and then calls after this on Stand to Reason.
Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate. All right, I was all wrong about the Missouri Compromise. Missouri was a slave state admitted as a state uh, that allowed slavery, and Maine was admitted as a state that did not, so it didn't upset the balance of power, but it did establish the Mason-Dixon line, which was the limitation of the spread of slavery. This happened in 1820. Okay, there you go. So I was wrong in the material aspects of my obs- of my illustration, but I was not mistaken in, in the uh, f- formal concerns that I was discussing, okay, and uh, that had to do with all or nothing. Um, and certainly is true of uh, the SCOTUS decision on Roe v. Wade. I mean, if you're if you're a purist, you're going to be upset about what about Roe v. Wade being canceled because it got tossed to the states and it didn't just outlaw abortion entirely. It saved a whole bunch of kids, but it didn't save all of them. That's incrementalism. We do what we can with what we have. All right. All right. Let's go to uh, William here and. Uh, William, you're in Michigan. Where in Michigan are you at? I'm uh, in Milford, Michigan. It's actually near where you were this weekend. Yeah, I was in Owasso, uh, just uh, kind of northeast of uh, Lansing. Yeah, so I was disappointed I couldn't go to that, but I, I learned about it Friday when I listened to the podcast. Oh, and, uh, my bad. I, because I, I, I plans and, Yeah, but it's, it's okay. Um, I, I got this podcast, so good. I get to listen to you every week, so. Yep. So what's on your mind? Well, um, I'm a 17-year-old uh, in high school, and one of my classes is uh, senior thesis. So uh, we have to write a thesis about uh, topics of our choice, maybe based off of a book, an idea. And uh, my subject that I am choosing is um, making a case for objective truth. Um, it's something that's really important to me. Um, I feel like there are very good arguments that can be made for objective truth that ultimately to, um, you know, belief in Jesus, because it's 
fundamentals of the Christian mm-hmm. worldview. Um, so my question uh, was basically wondering if you have any like reading suggestions um, or any resources that can help me as I'm kind of developing this argument. Sure. Now you're talking about ob- objective truth writ broadly. You're not talking about moral, objective moral truth, for example, or objective religious truth. You're just talking about anything that's considered objective truth. Um, well, I do. My mind does wander to moral truth because that is one of the arguments that I like to make. Yeah. Um, with you know the moral truth, there's no good or evil, and if there's no moral objective truth and there's no good and evil and then right. society basically falls apart but so yeah it would include moral okay so well yes it would include that but i'm just trying to get your focus so if there is no truth yeah. at all then that is if there there are no facts about the world that's really what we mean yeah. by the tr- by the concept of truth if you mean mm-hmm. objective truth, there are no facts um, about right. the world, then there can't be any moral facts, because that would have to be a subcategory, okay? But if there mm-hmm. were facts about the world, if there was truth, that doesn't mean that there's moral truth. So you're, if you're just right. dealing with the broader category, that's much more easy to deal with than the narrow category of moral truth, okay? Okay. Okay, so the the key, though, here, uh, you, you want to r- recommend some books. Well, Frank... Turek and Norm Geisler's book on I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist has a big section on whether or not there's truth. Um, and uh, But the, the reason I'm pausing here a little bit, and I have, we have things that we've done too, but I, I, the, the, I'm pausing because it, you, you actually don't need any expert testimony. Let's just say somebody says, Look at um, William. There are no good arguments for objective truth. Well, what do you make? What does that person who makes the statement make of his own claim? Right. Is, is that true? Is that claim accurate? And by the way, this is where you're going to have to use some synonyms. And that is: is the, is accurate or fact? Because the minute you, if you're not careful and you keep using the word truth, people are going to get all stumbled up because they misuse the word a lot, and they want to subjectivize it. Okay, so what you're going to need to do is you're going to have to, you're going to have to define your terms. Okay, and um, and knowledge and 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 truth are two different things. Just so you know, okay. But um, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of maybe some other sources that would be good to, to draw from. Do you have, William Lane Craig has written a book called Reasonable Faith. William Lane Craig, Reasonable Faith. And I suspect that this has a whole section in there. Now, this is a little bit philosophically heavy, but it's a popular book by a philosopher. You should be able to, uh, you, you know, get some help from that. Um, Another one, and I'm not sure if it has a chapter in this or not, but that I love is called um, Thinking About God. Thinking About God by Greg Gansel, G-A-N-S-S-L-E, I think. Maybe it's E-L, but I think it's L-E. 
anyway, uh, Greg wrote this great book a number of years ago, over 20 years ago, but it's about, it's, a, it's all these things about God, but I, I, he may have a preliminary chapter in there just about knowing true things. Okay. Right. But okay. again, to make the distinction, we are not, if you're making the case for truth, that's not the same as for knowing truth. Knowing truth is a subcategory. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to make the case for truth, and you might want to write this down, and is you're, you're asking the question, are there statements or beliefs that people can make that are accurate to reality? That's all we mean about objective truth. Are there statements can be made, beliefs people can have, that are accurate to reality? That's all a truth is. It's no more complicated than that. There, I might say that butter pecan ice cream is delicious, all right? Well, that's a statement. Mm-hmm. I think it's true. But it's not really a statement about butter pecan ice cream. It's a statement about me, what I think and what I taste, what, what I enjoy. It tells you nothing Correct. about butter pecan. Now, if I said butter pecan ice cream is made with butter pecans, well, that's mm-hmm. that's a statement about the ice cream. So yeah. th- there's a difference here between the statement about the subject, that would be the individual perceiver, and a statement about the object, the ice cream itself. Okay? The key here is when we make statements about objects, things out there in the world— that are accurate, then we have uttered a true statement. That makes sense? Are you taking notes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. I'm seriously writing here. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. But once, once you realize what the definition of truth is, then it's easy to make the case that there are such things. Because let's say somebody says, no, that's not the correct definition of truth. Oh, really? So you have the correct definition. Once you have, in other words, you have the true definition of truth. <laughs> Even to disagree with you at any point is to affirm the existence of truth. Because you can't say somebody is wrong or mistaken or has a non-factual or inaccurate claim without making a claim to be accurate yourself in that statement. So, simply put, to claim there is no truth is to offer a truth, and therefore the claim itself is self-refuting. Right. Okay, so there is a section on this, I don't know, I didn't think of this earlier, in the tactics book, under the suicide chapter. That is a point of view that commits suicide. It's self-refuting. I guess it's now an um, unfortunate name for the tactics, and suicide <laughs> is a real problem among young people. But anyway, it's it sticks. It's the, the there it is. It's in print for fifteen, twelve years, fourteen years, or whatever it is. And any yeah. the the and so um, if you read that, you're going to f- you're going to um, see the distinction being made there, okay, to help clarify. I'd also recommend um, a piece I wrote that's on our website. I wrote it last year. It's a solid ground titled The Primal Heresy. 
the primal heresy. And there I talk about the difference between objectivism and relativism. Okay, so I, I make clear distinctions, and the key thing for you, William, is to get the distinction of objective truth and subjective truth clear in your mind and be able to characterize it in some way on the paper. Once you ca- And I, I gave you a one-liner that mm-hmm. ought to be adequate, but in any event, um, then once you do, you can just, you can, you can make, you can go ahead and uh, th- then demonstrate that facts can be known. And by the way, if facts can't be known, then that's a fact that is known. Right. This is a paper you could do almost in one paragraph. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. In a certain sense, conceptually, it's that simple. But Mm -hmm. it is not always simple for people to understand or to grasp and to get, because they are so taken with relativistic thinking. There is no truth, they say. Really? What are we doing in school then? Why am I here in this classroom if there's no truth? What you're saying when you say there is no truth is there are no factual statements. Incidentally, um, if I said there were, there were you had a, jar, a jar of beans, and I said there are 10,374 beans in that jar, and there were, then that would be a true statement even if I was guessing. Mm. I wouldn't know it, because I'm just guessing. But if I got the guess correct, then my statement matches the number of beans. It's a true statement. That's the difference, by the way, between truth and knowledge. Knowledge isn't just an accurate guess. But if you don't talk about knowledge, you just don't talk about knowledge, just talk about truth. Truth is when a statement or a belief matches the way the world actually is. That would be the external world, the mind-independent world, the world out there. And incidentally, what I find to be a helpful metaphor is gravity. So when, when I say gravity is true or gravity is real, and that's a fact, and that is a truth, or my statement that gravity is real is true, if you didn't believe that statement and you believe gravity wasn't real, you wouldn't float away. (laughs) Because the real world is still the way it is, whether you believe it or not. Yeah. So another way of putting it, and I'm giving you a whole bunch of stuff right now, and you just have to go back to these articles. The, the one that I suggested is online. Maybe go there first, Primal, mm-hmm. primal Heresy, because I talk about relativism, how it's grasped or grabbed our, 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 the ethos of our culture, but, at, but I had to describe exactly what I mean by that. Okay, and I, I give what I call the inside-outside distinction. Okay, and you'll read that there. Um, but it, these are common sense notions. They are self, uh, they're self-validating. They are obviously so. All you have to do is reflect on them. You know, if, if I am the son of my mother, that means my mother is older than me. No, duh. 
right? It's just obvious. Yeah. Okay, and the same thing here. Truth is a relationship between a claim or a belief and the way the world is. That's it. It's a relationship, if you want to think very philosophically. And truths are mind-independent. In other words, it doesn't matter. Nobody has to believe in... If there were no conscious beings on Earth, gravity would still assert itself. It doesn't matter what people believe in it. It's mind-independent. But subjective truth is always mind-dependent. You know, whether Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious or not, that's mine. that depends on my mind. If my mind yeah. disappeared, or all minds disappeared, then nothing would be delicious, because delicious is the experience of a subject. Right. You know, so this is another way to characterize it. This is a very philosophically precise way of characterizing the difference between an objective truth and a subjective truth. Objective truth is mind independent. In other words, it, 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 it is the way it is, regardless of what any person believes about it. So the question then is, once you get clear on what you mean by objective truth, you just have to ask the question, does it seem like there are any things like that? There are any beliefs or the claims that fit reality? And if somebody says no, then you've just demonstrated a claim that fits reality. And if you say yes, then you've demonstrated a claim that fits reality. And incidentally, it's, it, it's, it's better for us than just that. It's not just self-refuting. But we test reality all the time to find out whether your belief is true. Let me ask you a question. Did you believe that I would be broadcasting between 5 and 6 on Tuesday today, October 25th? Yes. yes. No. And then you tested it by doing what? Calling in. Calling me. And guess what you got? You got me. Broadcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there you go. So you can have a belief that you are capable of testing to see whether it's true or not. Every time you push a button to dial somebody's phone number, you're testing a belief that you have that the phone number matches the person. When they answer the phone, you found out that the belief that you had that motivated your action is actually a true belief. There is truth. There is truth. Now, there's a. it's a bigger question as to whether the word truth or facts or accuracy about beliefs applies to things like morality or religion. That's a separate category. The first thing right. we've determined is whether there are things that are true. And of course there are. Obviously so. And in fact, we can know them. That's why I pointed out the testing of your phone call to me today. We can know them because we have a way of testing our beliefs against the real world. So not only are there truths, there are some truths we can know. See, now I've just moved the word knowledge into it. Mm. But even if we can, a lot of things we can't know doesn't mean we can't know anything. And one point that I make when I talk about this is if you, if you, if you couldn't know truth, if there was no truth, especially truth that you could know in some measure, then we would be dead in a day. Because our ability to know what the world is actually like is required for us to survive every moment. Mm. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, so we are dealing with a very common sense notion right here. We are, we are, there's nothing 
that ought to be the slightest bit controversial about what you and I have been talking about. It is, <laughs> but it's not hard to demonstrate that the controversy is shallow. Right. But you have to define object or truth in a very crisp way. What you mean to say is facts, accurate statements, accurate beliefs. Accurate in the sense that the claim of the statement or the what's the, entailed in the proposition of the belief matches the way the world actually is. That's all it is. It's objectively so. That's yeah. objective truth. Now the question is, is there anything that qualifies for that? And the answer is, of course. Indisputably. Because if you dispute it, then you affirm it. Mm. Follow that? Yeah. Well, i got to say, William, you are one bright 17-year-old. <laughs> I'm very impressed. Thank you. And I'm not I sure... Yes, you you earned it. I uh, I'm not sure if Greg Gansel's book covers this. Maybe I'm almost positive Bill Craig's book does. I know that Frank Turk and Geisler's book on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist does. But I would start with the with the article you find on our website, the Primal Heresy, because that's a freebie. Yeah, I, and I have your tactics book. Okay. Actually, the yeah. And the, probably the first chapter on suicide where I talk about formal suicide has the material there too. So you can trade okay. on that. Yeah. But, but the thing is you, the only, I think the only citation you have to make is when somebody states something in a kind of a crisp or clever way that you want to give them credit for the way they stated it. You do not need an authority to tell you that thing, there are things that are true. Because this is an appeal to just to common sense realism, okay, and to mm -hmm. the, the nature of reality. That's the case I would make. Not Greg Kokel or Frank Turek says it, you know, but but uh, but rather this is the this is the nature of reality. All we have to do is observe. If we can make statements that are accurate to the way the world is, then we have stated truths. And if we deny we can do that, we have also stated a truth. <laughs> and that's for that. That's, yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> I'd be very interested, William, if uh, you, uh, if, if, after you do your paper and whatever, I'd be very interested to see how it went. Certainly. Yeah. And so we, if you got a grade back and what they said or the comments or whatever. Um, yeah. Like I said, I think this could be done in, in, in one decent-sized paragraph, but they're going to probably want more. Uh, but uh, I'm just yeah, saying, because this is such a self-evident thing. Yeah. All righty? Okay. Okay, stay in touch, William. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for the call. I love calls like that. And it does... It does mystify me that there is so much confusion on this, and I'm glad that William is uh, taking this one on. Um, let's see. Uh, we have some uh, open mic calls that I'd like to go to, and I think the first one on my list here is Kenneth. <clears throat> and uh, do we have Kenneth queued up there? Okay, let's hear what Kenneth has to say. 
Hi, Greg. Uh, love the show. Love everything you do. Uh, so pleased to, to have all the content that you guys put out. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, my question is kind of about the, the life of the mind. Um, I've, I've noticed uh, kind of recently that if I have a kind of an argument with my wife or maybe a, a conversation with a friend about uh, uh, God, that I'll often go back through the conversation in my head and kind of, I don't know, clean up uh, how things went. I'll, I'll say again what I should have said. I'll kind of imagine what they said back to me. And I, I'm wondering if, if there's something you do um, as well, a uh, recap of conversations and things. And maybe also if you think it's healthy to do, like um, should I be washing these conversations and, and making myself look better, feel better in my own mind? Um, or is this kind of healthy to, to look through and, and make sure that that uh, I have my thoughts right in my head and, and it's no no big deal. So I'm just wondering if you experience that and, and whether you what you do to try and um, make sure that you're not being too proud in your own mind or something. That's that's my question. Thanks. Well, Kenneth, this is a wonderful question and uh, guilty as charged. I do do that, and I actually think there's an upside and a downside. Um, you mentioned two different kinds of circumstances, like arguing with your wife or arguing with someone about God, and those are different kinds of relationships. Uh, you said something about, well, is it okay or good for me or healthy to do this so that I would look better, maybe, or feel better? And all of these require qualifications. Uh, the irony is, I was struggling with this very issue driving to the studio this morning. Okay, and in fact, I struggle with it some uh, frequently, and partly because um, in the tactics book, I talk about how to improve your tactical approach. And the way you improve your tactical approach is to prepare when the pressure's off. Uh, most of us are not good on our feet, you know, and so we, um, we, we, we are hit with a circumstance, and we don't know right in the heat of the moment how best to respond. Uh, but we can do better if we are not under pressure. And when are those times? Well, either before or after. Lots of times it's after. In other words, after the pressure moment, we are not under pressure. We are by ourselves on our own at our leisure. And we our minds are clearer. And we often, as you suggested, think about what we ought to have said. Oh, man, I could have said this. And that would have really got them. Or I could have said this. And that would have really made a difference and whatever. So um, I'm completely sympathetic to um, the dynamic you're discussing. And I do it myself and advocate it under certain circumstances, okay? Uh, so there is, a, there is a bright side and there is a dark side to the process. What I describe in the book is when you've gone through a circumstance and you feel you have not acquitted yourself well, and this is going to be true. I, I talk about spiritual things in the book and defending the faith, but it's true in other circumstances too. Let's just say in your argument with your wife. And, and you realize, oh, I, didn't, I did not express myself well or accurately or effectively or persuasively in either of those circumstances. I think it's entirely legitimate to ask yourself, how could I have conducted myself differently to be more effective in the point that I was making? Okay, how could I have conducted myself differently to be more effective in the point I was making? 
right now in formally with regards to the, the, just in general that's a good thing to do okay now a lot depends on the point you were making so if you're talking to your friend about god and you think he's an idiot and you didn't now you think of a better way to call him an idiot well that's not what we're trying to accomplish so that's why i said sometimes your review might have a dark side to it if your review is to be more virtuously effective in any of those conversations it's a good thing to do that and then to go over it in such a way as you can uh, uh, kind of be in position in the future to, to speak more effectively to that issue okay that's that's a good thing all right um, if what you want to do more effectively in the future is to draw blood first or draw more blood well that's not a good idea and sometimes provocative issues that we discuss politically or spiritually or whatever these turn into gladiator kind of affairs and I think that's a huge mistake we don't want that kind of circumstance we want we we want our engagements they could be provocative they could be intense they could be spirited they could be um, emotionally expressed but we're not trying to draw blood we're not trying to be the um, in that sense the most skilled warrior okay um, so that's one side of it here's a, there's another side of this as well and though and that is you mentioned look better or feel better I think sometimes when we have discussions either with spouses or with spiritual discussions with people who disagree with us we can come out feeling bad like we've been beaten up a little bit illicitly and Ill illegitimately and so we might be going over those conversations and realizing oh wait a minute I was treated unfairly there now I see something that I didn't see before and now I feel better about myself or the circumstance than I did because I think I got hammered unfairly and now that I see that I was hammered unfairly I feel a little better about myself nothing wrong with that all right um, uh, or to look better if what we mean by look better is to be more precise in engagement in communicating the truth more effectively but if we're mean look better to to mean I just want to appear more virtuous or appear the victor now that's different so the answer to your question depends on these factors all right in general I think it's good to review all right and we want to review for the sake of maybe a more productive engagement in the future but one other thing and this is what I was thinking about when I was driving out here sometimes when you have a bad experience with someone you may in a conversation you may want to go over that a bit to figure out what happened to get more clear on the issue think about what you might have said that would have helped the circumstances or at least communicate your own view more accurately and precisely nothing wrong with that but sometimes you go over and over and over and over again you're just reliving that bad experience and I'm pretty soon it gets a little bit nasty so I what happened to me today as I was praying about a circumstance like that and I realized in the middle of my prayer I'm starting to get into that cycle of reliving that and that I should have said this and I could have said that and I oh wait a minute I'm off the prayer now and into kind of gladiator mode and then I got it sorry Lord okay I don't want to talk about that let's just let's 
talk together about this instead of me going back over it. Let me go to you. And then I'm talking to the Lord, and then bingo, I'm back into the cycle again. So it's a mixed bag. There's an upside and there's a downside. The upside is good, but the downside is not. And you just want to guard yourself against the downside while you review how you might have communicated more clearly. All right? So there you go, Kenneth, and I hope that's helpful. I'm looking at the clock. we got about five minutes, and Richard just came on board, so let's uh, let's get to Richard. Welcome to the show, Richard. You made it. Yes. Um, I wanted to know, seeing what uh, Leviticus chapter 20 says, shouldn't Christians be working to make homosexuality a capital offense? Well, my short answer is no, and simply because it's a capital offense in the Bible, under the theocracy with the Jews— does not mean that it ought to be a capital offense in every Gentile culture. Keep in mind that breaking the Sabbath was a capital offense. And some guys there out there picking up firewood on the wrong day got zapped by God in the book of Numbers or maybe towards the end of the book of Exodus. So um, there are lots of things in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Mosaic Law that were actionable for particular reasons with the Jews— under the theocracy, but that doesn't mean that it is appropriate for us to enact all of those same laws, including the one about homosexuality, in our own culture. I think things have to be taken on an individual basis. So, murder murder is prohibited in Scripture, but there are reasons why in every culture we need to protect innocent human beings from violent, lethal action. So there's an example. Go ahead. Well, Jesus uh, was criticized and that was one of the main reasons he's crucified for breaking the Sabbath. Right. So how are we to know? I mean, is it just up to? It's just up to you as to which one of those laws we sh- should enforce and which ones we should say. Well, that's just for the Jews back then. Well, what I would say, and I'm really short on time here, but I'll, I'll just give you my blanket statement: none of the Mosaic Law applies to any Gentile at any time because it's the Mosaic Law. There may be principles in the Mosaic Law that turn out to be universal principles, and that's why they're in the law. But none of us is beholden to any feature of the law simply because it's the Mosaic Law. That's a contract that God made with the Jews, and it has a very specific form. So we can look at that and see what wisdom can we gain for our life now, but there is nothing in the law that we are obliged to keep simply because it's in the Mosaic law. My argument is that there, may, that there are things in the law that are there because they're the kind of thing that should apply to all populations. Murder, for example, the prohibition of murder. Um, but the prohibition against uh, disobeying parents, that was also a capital crime. So I'm not picking and choosing from the Mosaic Law. I am not using the Mosaic Law at all, in the sense that just because it's there, we should um, we should legislate regarding that. I'm asking myself the question, what kinds of things are the things that we should be legislating because they relate on a universal basis to the common good? That's what I'm asking. And if you don't ask the question that way, Richard, you're going to be—you're going to make breaking the Sabbath a capital crime. And Jesus, by the way, was under the theocracy at that time. 
but he wasn't breaking the Sabbath. That's the other detail. He was, in fact, in Genesis, or rather in Matthew 25, he says that, that the Jews then should keep all of the things of Moses that the Pharisees tell them, just don't do as the Pharisees do. The point was that they were still under the Mosaic Covenant at that point of time. The Jews were obliged to keep the Mosaic Law. We are not obliged to keep the Mosaic Law. Does that make sense so, to you? So that's why, because a while back you said that Jesus would approve of uh, killing a disobedient child. Um, I'm not sure I recall that specific remark, but the point I made uh, that I can stand behind is that Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew, and that whatever part of the law applied to the circumstance in consideration, then he would keep that law, okay? Just like the woman caught in adultery. He didn't deny that the woman caught in adultery should die. He, 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 he avoided a difficult circumstance, and when everybody left, he was no longer a witness to that crime, so he could not condemn her under the law, but he still told her, go and sin no more. So this obviously could take more conversation, but Richard, I'm glad that you called and raised it here at the last minute. Sorry, I didn't give it more time, but that's it for me. Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.